You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. This week my guests are Brad Gushu, fresh off his team's historic fourth briar win in Lethbridge last weekend. We're also joined by Olympian Hans Fraunlob of the World Curling Federation broadcast team, who joined me to discuss the upcoming Women's Worlds in Prince George... And speaking of the Women's Worlds, we are also joined this week by Team Anderson, who joined us for a team interview shortly after their first practice in Prince George. My first guest this week is four-time Briar champion Brad Gushu, who joined me to discuss his team's remarkable win at the 2022 Tim Hortons Briar in Lethbridge, where they played shorty man throughout the playoffs after third Mark Nichols tested positive for COVID. First and foremost, Brad, congratulations on winning your fourth Briar title last weekend in uh, Lethbridge. Uh, If I had told you three days before the start of the Briar that your team was going to win and would do so playing the whole playoffs three-legged without Mark Nichols, what would have been your response? I would have laughed at you and and said that's that's not realistic, number one, because I didn't think we'd test positive. You know, we we took a lot of precautions when we were at the Briar, uh, obviously not to the extent uh, we did at the Olympics, but certainly, you know, we, we did everything we, we should have done um, or we could have done. I, I should say we wore a mask. We didn't go to any restaurants. We didn't go to the patch. You know, we almost eliminated all autographs and pictures. Um, you know, and even when we did, we kept our distance and then sanitized. And so how he caught it, we, we have no idea, but uh you know, we're not the only people in that position. There's people catching it, not knowing how they got it. Uh, and then the other side, you know, the the play with three players and to beat three really good teams that are playing well. Like those three teams had to be playing well all week just to get to the playoffs. And and uh, to win three games with three players is just crazy. I think the the odds of winning one are are not great, uh, but then doing it back to back to back is just yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. My uh, my wife. I was talking to my wife after it happened, or after we heard the news about Mark, and she's like, "You know, you still have a chance." And I said, "Yeah, we still have a chance." But I said we went from maybe a you know fifty, sixty, seventy percent chance to a one percent chance. And uh, you know, she's like, "Oh," she said, "That's not good." And I'm like, "No, it's that's not a good. Uh, those odds aren't good." But we found a way, and. You know, it may have been higher than 1%, but it certainly dropped dramatically once Mark wasn't in the lineup. Now, Brad, without necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty, uh, can you take me back to the Friday at the Briar? How did you guys find out that Mark had tested positive? And then how did you and the team go about processing what you would need to do in order to play without Mark and be competitive in the playoffs at a national championship? Yeah, so it, it actually started Thursday night. We were We were just grabbing a bite to eat after, you know, we had a tough game against BC and and Mark walked in the room and, and I could tell he wasn't really himself. He seemed a little stuffed up and his throat was a little rough. And I, I said to him, I said, Mark, you probably shouldn't be in here. And we, you know, we clued up that meal really quick, got out and got back to our rooms. And, and, you know, I said, if you're not feeling good in the morning, let me know. And he reached out to me Friday morning and he wasn't feeling, he was feeling worse than what he was that night. And, 
you know, we were like, well, you should probably should probably get tested. And there was no requirement to test. And, and, uh, but I said, you know, we, we have to be considerate of, of everybody else in the event of the other teams. And, you know, if you are feeling symptoms, you know, you, you have to test and, and he did the test and sure enough, it came back, came back positive. And then, you know, the stress really hit because number one, you're worried about how it's going to impact him. And then the number two, do any of the other three players uh, have it or, or Jules. Um, so, you know, we, we all got tested and, and we were good to go. And then we figured out, okay, how do we have to play? How are we going to do this with three players? Like, how are we going to, going to perform or, or at least be competitive. And then also, you know, the stress then of if one more of us test positive throughout the event, then, then we're out. And, uh, you know, we found a way to get through it and, you know, we, uh, yeah, just, I'm still mind blown that, uh, that we made it happen. And with all due respect to the talent on your team, Brad, I'm not sure there were many people who thought you'd be able to win three games in the space of 36 hours against three very good teams that were all playing well while you guys were playing three-legged and missing arguably the best third in the world. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to believe. And, and um, you know, you're, you're right. I think our team were probably better suited to most just because of the skill set of, of Brett and Jeff having played some mixed doubles and being able to, to throw a rock, get up and chase it and sweep and you know, Jeff had done some skipping, you know, it's, it's probably 12 years ago now. Um, you know, so he, he, he adjusted really well to being down in the head with me. Uh, but then, you know, he's throwing peels. Like that's not something we practice when, when Jeff is with us, we really focus on the shots that he plays a lot, the, the draws, the, the ticks and, and things of that nature. And, and all of a sudden he's throwing runbacks and doubles and, uh, shots that, that he normally doesn't practice. So, you know, to see the way that he adapted to that was pretty impressive. How did the team go about deciding that Jeff would be the one in the house when you were throwing, as opposed to Brett, who once skipped a team to a Canadian Junior Championship? Yeah, so the original idea was we were going to alternate it just to give that guy that's that's doing all the sweeping a, a bit of a break because uh, we knew it would be physically taxing on the guys to, to do that role uh, game in, game out. And when we played the first game, Jeff did such a great job at, at calling line and, and we made some good hit, hits and rolls because of, of how good he did that we just decided to stick to it. And, and the other side is Brett's obviously an incredible sweeper and, and has the ability to kind of shift from side to side too because of the way he sweeps where Jeff, Jeff is typically a two gripper sweeper. So for him to go to side to side, it, it wasn't something he normally does. Now he does do it in mixed doubles, but you know, the way Brett sweeps in mixed doubles is very similar to how he sweeps in the men's game. Uh, so he had that ability to shift from side to side probably a little bit better. And I'm also wondering, Brad, how did your in-game strategy change uh, once you had to make the switch from four players to three players? Uh, I'm assuming you had to tweak things a little bit because you were three-legged. Uh, it, it changed quite a bit. Um, you know, a number of factors. One, we we were trying to really keep keep the game close. Um you know, we didn't go out and attack as, as much as we normally do. Or, you know, if, if there was an opportunity to blank, whether we had hammer or not hammer, you know, we, we took it um, because we were just trying to keep, keep the game close, give ourselves a chance in the last couple ends to win. And, and certainly in the game against the games against Boxer, you know, he was very cooperative in allowing us to do that, which I was quite surprised with. Uh, I thought Colton and, uh, and Kevin kind of attacked us a little bit more and, 
and showed a showed a little bit of our vulnerabilities with with three players. Um, and then the other side, from a strategic standpoint, is is I tried to play a certain turn that really benefited our sweepers. So, you know, Brett sweeps on on the left hand side. So if I had an, an opportunity to, to to choose an out turn, we would do that. So he would be still on his strong side on the inside. And then the opposite for uh, for Brett's rocks, where Jeff was on the intern side. So there was a lot more thought process on each and every shot because of that, trying to play to our strengths as much as we could and, and minimize the weaknesses that we had with three players. Uh, so, so I'm, you know, I was pretty mentally exhausted after each game because I, I was thinking probably twice as much as what I normally would. You've probably been better off to write a few uh, messages for yourself on your cell phone at that point, uh, uh, Brad, to remind yourselves uh, of all the little things that you need to focus on, given your team's special circumstances uh, on the weekend in Lethbridge. And, and to be honest, I, I, you know, I was able, you know, I'm pretty proud of the way I was able to stay in the moment. And, you know, I, I don't think I had any lapses throughout the game where I'm like, geez, I wish I'd, I'd done this differently. Uh, you know, I felt our decision-making was, was pretty strong and, and, you know, even Jeff coming down, I thought he was super engaged and, you know, was we were able to talk through different situations really well. So the fact we've been together so long, I think also helped that, uh, you know, we were comfortable with everybody in the new role and, and how we were going to do it. And the trust was still there. Now, Brad, regardless of your experience, typically when you get to the back half of a uh, briar week and your team happens to be in the hunt, you tend to feel a little bit more pressure. Did you sense that you and the team were playing freer with less pressure once you were three-legged and expectations dropped a little bit, or did winning it for Mark just generate a different kind of pressure? Yeah, it, it actually created a bit of a perfect storm for us. Uh, we struggled the whole week with kind of that energy, that motivation, that that extra level that you usually get at a big event because we, you know, we were still pretty fatigued after that whole six week Olympic process that we went through. And when Mark went down, I, I believe the energy and, and that motivation kind of came back. And then on the other side, you know, all of a sudden we're playing with three players, the pressure and the expectations drop, which is always a good thing. And that, you know, that takes away some of the, the, the extra nerves that you have or, or those expectations of, of winning because you probably don't think it's going to happen with three players. And certainly I didn't think it was going to happen with three players. And, you know, we really focused on that, that cliche of shot by shot. And, you know, when you total it all up, you know, we found ourselves in position to win and, and we were able to come through. Now, obviously, Brad, uh, people will forever remember the 2022 Briar as the one that your team won playing three-legged. However, what will get lost in that conversation is that your team went undefeated in a round robin before Mark tested positive. How surprised were you with how you and the boys responded at the Briar to go undefeated in a round robin after a very busy two months that included all of the emotions and the travel associated with the Olympic Games? Yeah, I, I I was really surprised. You know, I I wouldn't have been surprised if we finished two and six. To be quite honest, I, you know, I, I again it came down to a little bit of the expectations. I, they weren't as high going in, and and certainly got lower as as our the number of the players on our team reduced. Um, but we played well, and and the ice surface was good. We were excited to play in front of fans too. I think that that helped us quite a bit. The, the fact that people were there, they were cheering us on. They were supportive of, of us all week. That was something we missed over in Beijing. And, and, you know, it allowed us to, to find that a little bit of extra ener energy in certain moments. Like when you needed a big shot, you know, if you make it, this crowd's going to go, going to go crazy. Uh, you know, that's, 
that gives you a little bit of a boost. And we were able to capitalize on some of those moments. And, you know, I just want to touch on, on another thing too. I, you know, I've, I've heard some people or, or read some stuff about, you know, three players being an advantage. Uh, I'd love for, you know, someone to poll every single top team and see if they'd rather play us with three or four players. And, and I guarantee it's a hundred percent unanimous. They'd rather play us with three than four. Um, so it, it's in no way an advantage. We are, an infinitely stronger team with Mark in the lineup. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is pretty, pretty crazy what we did. And, and, um, yeah, we not saying we would have done it easier with Mark in there, but certainly I, I think our odds, uh, increased dramatically. I mean, to your point, uh, you guys had to play the playoffs at the Briar without someone who most people would agree is one of the top three thirds in the world. And I, I know for, I just look at some of the teams we played, like you take, you take a player off Kevin Cooey's team or Brendan Boxer's team, and boy, I I love my odds. I think they increase dramatically uh, when I when I'm playing those guys or or you know Jacobs. You take Mark Kennedy out of the lineup, I'd much rather play you know Jacobs with the Herndon boys than than uh, you know Jacobs with the Herndon boys and Mark Kennedy. Um, you know, it, you just you're just a better team with four. It's an extra set of eyes. It's another sweeper. Uh, the communication and the level of precision just go up, you know, dramatically when you, when you have four players. I mean, there's also something to be said for the well-established rhythm your team has when playing with its regular lineup. I mean, each of you doing the little things throughout a game that might seem minor to those watching on TV, but that are a key part of your team's uh, routine and, and regular rhythm for a four-person game. Yeah, you're right. It's it's just the normalcy of having four. Everything feels comfortable, and all of a sudden with three, it's everything is different. You, you're doing everything different, and uh, you know the thought process that has to go into it. I'm I'm sure if if we practice with three players every single game, every single day, you know we probably narrow that gap uh, quite a bit. But as you said, it's it was so new and is is done so rare that uh, you know you have to really think so much on the fly. Now, Brad, your most famous shot was that draw on the last rock at the 2017 Briar at home in St. John's, which won, which won your team that first Briar. Uh, this was a different situation, but it came down to the last shot of uh, an extra N in this case at the Briar. And although it wasn't a draw, it was a delicate hit and stick on a part of the sheet that seemed to have gotten trickier as the game went on. What was going through your mind as you were in the hack preparing to throw that final rock in the extra end in Lethbridge? Yeah, I was I was hoping he'd give me a little bit more. If if I could have drawn full eight foot uh, and got shot, that was the shot I wanted to play. Uh, but when he drew it there and and he had a good chunk of the four foot, I, I felt you know the hit was the high percentage shot. But that spot there, the intern when you went wide, there was a little bit of frost and and you know it could have been a situation where we grabbed a bit of that and it curled too much. So really forced us to play the out turn, which had gotten straighter and straighter as the game went on. And when I sat there in the, with the, and looked at the broom, I thought, you know, this is the maximum amount of ice that we can, we can take to make this shot. And, and I asked Brett, Brett thought it was good. Jeff thought it was good. And, you know, my thought process was, okay, let's, let's stick with this ice, but let's make sure that I don't overthrow this thing. Make sure I throw hack weight or even a hair less and we should be good. And uh, when I threw it, to be honest, it was it was one of the best rocks I threw all game. I, I threw it real straight, real nice, uh, and I knew I didn't overthrow it. And when it got halfway down the sheet, I was like, okay, it's got a curl. And I was I called for the curl just because 
I knew it was never going to overcurl. Um, you know, I felt like we were going to hit about three quarters of it, and and it 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 ran much straighter than I thought. You know, we still made it with with relative ease. We rolled a couple feet, but um, you know, it was uh, it was more more just to make sure it uh, it did curl. And uh, you know, fortunately, we we pulled it off. But the key was, you know, I, I threw the right weight, and uh, on those shots in that situation or on that type of ice you know, you throw six or eight feet more than what you're looking to throw and, and you can look silly, you know, you could flash that rock pretty easy. So, you know, it's a challenging weight to throw in, in a big moment, but I felt comfortable. I felt confident in it. In it. And fortunately I, I uh, hit the weight we were looking for. Brad, one of the cooler moments uh, that happened during the week in Lethbridge actually happened after the Briar final uh, in a video that went uh, viral online or as viral as a curling video can go. Uh, and that's when uh, you and uh, Brett and uh, Jeff brought the tankard back to the hotel and put it outside of uh, Mark's room so that he could have a few minutes with it in his room, take some pictures, uh, shoot some short videos and uh, and have his moment with a trophy that he was a big part of uh, earning for your team. Can you tell t- Talk, uh, can you talk me through that moment and uh, what it felt like to bring that trophy back uh, to Mark so that he could be uh, part of the celebration with your team, even though uh, he had to do it on his own uh, inside of his hotel room? Yeah, you know, Mark was as big a, a big a piece as, uh, of us winning this as anybody else. And, and when the tanker was back in the locker room and they were, you know, Curling Canada was looking to take it back, we asked if we could, uh, you know, take it back to the hotel with us for, for a little bit. And we thought if we, we gave it to Mark, it makes him feel as much a part of the celebration as we could, you know, uh, we couldn't go into the room and have a beer with them or give them a hug, you know, but uh, sharing the tanker trophy with them and, and allowing them to get a picture and see it and, and, and feel it, uh, you know, made it a little closer to home. Cause that's one of the cool moments when you win, you, you know, you get to take your picture with the trophy, you get to hold it, all that, all that fun stuff. So we had the ability to do it. So we figured, you know, what, what the heck, you know, at the end of the day, he can sanitize it and hand it back. So, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a cool moment. Uh, it was a little bit emotional when he came to the door. I think we were all a little choked up, but, um, I'm glad he enjoyed it. Now, Brad, you've made no secret of the fact that it might be difficult to keep this lineup together for the next cycle due to residency restrictions. In fact, Brett was pretty emotional following the Briar final discussing his eight-year journey with your team. How did you go about avoiding the distractions that come with being at a Briar in the final year of a cycle where there is typically a bunch of discussions taking place about the next cycle? I mean, Brad Jacobs, as an example, was pretty adamant in the media saying that he and his team were not going to discuss the future in the lead-up to the Briar because they wanted their soul focus to be on the task at hand in Lethbridge? Well, I, I think we, we took the opposite approach, I guess, to, to what Brad, uh, Brad Jacobs did. You know, we, we tried to be as, as open and honest about it. I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, if, if, if our team doesn't end up staying together, I, I want to, I want everybody to have an opportunity to, to play on a great team. And, and, you know, I've certainly have been very open with, with the team about, you know, Go, go ahead and have conversations if you need. Um, but let's, let's be open and honest and, and let's know what's going on. So there's no wondering, okay, where's, where's so-and-so and who, who are they talking to? And, and I think that allowed us to, to, to be free. And, and I kind of, you know, had a good idea what everybody was thinking and what everybody's doing, because, you know, this is standard stuff every four years and it doesn't mean your team is necessarily going to break up or, or, 
uh, or stay together. It, it's kind of due diligence, really. You know, you want to see where where everybody's at, where their if their heart is still in it. You know what uh, what life changes are coming. You know, if guys are are moving, getting married, uh, taking on a new job. Like, there's so many factors that go into committing to a four year cycle that. You know, you you have to do your due diligence. You just can't pick pick a player and and then find out a year or two later that, you know, they're moving across the country to take a new job. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the process that's happening and has been happening over the last number of weeks, and probably will continue to happen over the next few weeks uh, until everybody gets a good idea and then starts making their decisions. Now, Brad, I know that you're very familiar with curling history. Uh, where do you believe uh, that your victory in Lethbridge places your team in Canadian curling history, both from the perspective of how you went about winning in Lethbridge, but also the fact that your team has now won four Briars in six years? Yeah, I, I think four out of six uh, has to be right up there. Obviously, Furby and those guys won, won four out of five. There's been no other team where all four players have, have won four other than, other than Furby. Um, you know, the Richardsons did it, but they had one different player. Um, so that has to put us, I believe, up there in the conversation of, of one of the greatest teams of all time. Um, you know, as far as our performance at this year's Briar, you know, I can't speak to some of the ones uh, that I didn't watch uh, when I wasn't alive or was really young, but certainly in the last 30 years of, of watching Briars, you know, the only one that I can I could think that had as much, yeah, you know, was as kind of epic as this one would have been Daisy's when you know they went three one three to uh, to come back against Furby in in I guess two thousand and four, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, that was that was a pretty pretty wild finish and pretty uh, pretty shocking, I think, for for the curling world. You know, I think our Briar win in in St. John's was was. Uh, you know, kind of that feel-good story and, and with all the pressure. Uh, but, yeah, th- those are kind of the ones that I would match up. I You know, like I said, I can't speak to anything probably pre-1995. So, um, you know, but I've, since then, I've, I've watched every Briar pretty closely. And finally, Brad, as we discussed briefly earlier, it's been uh, quite a few months for your team. First, the trials and the Olympic roller coaster leading to a bronze medal and now a Briar victory. How much gas do you guys have left in the tank and what will be the process in the coming weeks to hopefully make sure you're hitting on all cylinders when you arrive in Vegas for the 2022 World Championships? Yeah, I, I don't think there's much left in the tank at this point, but the, the fortunate thing is we got almost three weeks before before the start of it, two and a half weeks for sure. We're the number one goal for our team is, is going to be rest. Um, you know, we've basically told each other, we're taking a, all taking a minimum of, of a week off away from the rink, away from throwing rocks. Uh, some of us, including myself, I think may, may extend that even a little bit further uh, just to make sure that the, the rest is, is prioritized. Because I think if we go in and, and we have a full tank of gas, we feel energized, you know, we're not going to forget how to curl. Um, you know, in a, in a matter of a couple days practice and we can get that feel back, but we got to make sure that the energy levels are where we want and that motivation is where we want. So, uh, that's what we're going to be prioritizing. And, and, uh, you know, we've already got a little bit of a, you know, me personally, I got a plan in place for the, the next two and a half weeks. And, and I know all the guys have, uh, have been thinking about that quite a bit. My next guest this week is 2006 Olympian and curling broadcaster Hans Fraunlob, who joined me to discuss the women's worlds that start this coming weekend in Prince George, British Columbia. 
Hans, you and I haven't spoken since well before the Olympics, uh, and I know that you're in regular contact uh, with people in the uh, international curling community in Asia and Europe. Uh, what were some of the key takeaways uh, in those regions from the Olympic curling competitions in Beijing? Oh, boy. Well, a few things. I mean, the sport has so much oriented itself around Olympic cycles. You know, the Olympic Games themselves are almost like a natural conclusion of a cycle. And um, so I think the takeaways from Beijing were probably two teams uh, dealing to some unfinished business in their resumes. So Nicholas Sedin and uh, Eve Muirhead um, you know, winning titles that had been kind of dangled as a possibility for both of their teams for quite some years was probably, uh, you know, uh, the most memorable thing um, from men's and women's curling at Olympics. And uh, I think the other thing that sticks with me is uh, uh, Italy winning the gold medal in, in mixed doubles curling, a first ever international medal for Italy. So I, I think the Olympics as ever is a, is a magnificent showcase for the sport, but it also represents you know, the end of the line and some recalibration for some teams in terms of thinking about the next cycle. And I think that segues quite nicely into uh, the upcoming uh, world championship events where some teams have got some clearly unfinished business that they want to continue and pick up on and other teams, it's the start of a new journey. So it's an interesting time, the Olympics, and it's a, it's a nice end point for one cycle and the start of another. Hans, how much of an impact do you believe that the Olympic gold medal won by Stefania Constantini and Amos Mozaner of Italy in mixed doubles in Beijing will have on the growth of the sport in their country, given that the next Olympic Games will be held in Italy? You know, the last part of the question really dictates the answer, and, and that's exactly it. So now you've got effectively poster children for the next host Olympics uh, that have been put on a plate for Italian sport. It is unbelievably good. Stefania, uh, she's from Cortina. That's where the event is actually going to be held uh, in the next Winter Olympics. So uh, as far as Italian curling goes, uh, you couldn't ask for better. Uh, they've got not only people that can be competitive, you know, theoretically in the next Olympics, but they've effectively got uh, uh, spokespeople and ambassadors for the event itself. Um, uh, that it, it, it's You couldn't write the story better for Italian curling and for uh, the next Winter Olympics. It's uh, magnificent. Now, the World Championships that occur in an Olympic year, Hans, typically have a different vibe, with some countries sending teams that did not participate in the Olympics, while other countries send the same teams, like Sweden did in 2018, sending Team Hasselberg to the Worlds in North Bay a few short weeks after they had won gold in Pyeongchang. How difficult do you believe the Worlds will be this year for teams like Hasselborg and, and Tiranzoni of Switzerland and Kim of Korea to rebound after, uh, you know, all the effort and time and energy and stress and everything else that comes with participating in an Olympic Games? How difficult will it be for those teams to rebound and bring their A games to the Worlds after competing in Beijing at the Olympics? No, that's a great question. And when I look at the women's Worlds field, I've kind of chunk them up into three broad groups and um, in in one group I call the the unfinished business group and in that group I've got Canada Carrie Anderson and Anna Hasselborg and Switzerland Savannah Terenzoni and even Kim Un-jung from uh, South Korea you know each of those teams comes into this event with kind of a missing piece so Carrie Anderson never won a world championship um, uh, Anna Hasselborg never won a world championship. Um, 
Kim and Jung, um, never won a world championship, but a, a contender and sort of back on the scene again. Silvana Terenzoni, two-time defending world champion, uh, looked really strong in the round-robin phase at Olympics, but uh, couldn't close it out. So each of those four teams are both legitimate contenders, and they've got something where this event and the result in this event coming up actually means something for them in the terms of something missing from their or their resume. Um, and then there's another group of teams, which I call the new kids on the block. And so in there, I would put Turkey, I would put Czech Republic, and I would put Scotland, where you've got teams that are either making their first ever appearance at a world championship, uh, like Turkey, or in the case of the Czech Republic, um, Anna Kabeskova uh, uh, is expecting. And so the lineup that will be playing in Prince George will be an all-new lineup. And they were introduced into the field late in the piece. Scotland, as he touched on, Rebecca Morrison, um, first appearance. So these are teams that are kind of having their first ever real world experience um, in the configuration that they're playing in, at least. And then another group that I kind of call the veterans or the returnees. And so Germany, Danielle Gentsch, uh, Corey Christensen from the USA, Kristen Skassian from Norway, uh, Madeleine Dupont from Denmark, Ikua Kitazawa from Japan, and Stefania Constantini from Italy, all of those teams have uh, appeared, or at least members of their teams have appeared at Women's Worlds before, uh, and they've got aspirations for higher performance. And so it's going to be an interesting um, tournament, as it always is. Um, you know, the year after an Olympic year, different teams are on different missions. And so some of these teams are going to have aspirations for 2026. Um, some of these teams have got some unfinished business, and maybe they're heading towards the end of their journeys. So, uh, and it's ever thus, I think, but especially in the worlds after an Olympics, it's uh, most present. So um, it's, it's going to be, as usual, a lot of really interesting storylines, and there will usually be a team that pops out and plays really well unexpectedly, and there will be teams that uh, you'd expect to play well that perhaps don't. Um, but it'll be an interesting event. And we've got you know a, a new rule change being thrown into the whole equation as well to make it. Uh, interesting for the curling fans who've never seen an OTIC rule played at a world's level before. We're going to see that too. You just mentioned uh, Turkey briefly in your last answer, Hans. Uh, how big is it for a national curling program uh, like the one in Turkey when one of their teams qualifies uh, the country for a world championship for the first time, which is a case uh, this year in Prince George with Turkey uh, being one of the teams participating in the women's worlds? Yeah, well, I think what qualifying into a world's does uh, for any country's curling program is it further legitimizes uh, where you're at in terms of um, potential and, and potential um, Olympic participation as well. So for Turkey, you know, they've qualified through uh, the European zone. Um, you know, they've, they've contested for, for many years in, in B group and, you know, have been steadily improving and now they've broken through and have qualified uh, for worlds. And so it's a terrific step up and, you know, for any team competing for the first time ever at a new level, um, it's, you know, everything is new. <laughs> so it's a learning experience, but it's also uh, a marker that says, okay, uh, we're in this frame now. And I think that's very much the case for Turkey. If I think about uh, the Olympic Winter Games just passed, it was similar for Australia in mixed doubles and for Czech Republic in mixed doubles, first time that they'd ever had uh, curling representatives at an Olympic Winter Games. And so every time you appear for the first time at a new level, uh, it says something, uh, both to the sport funders, but I think even more important than that, 
um, just the community at large in those countries. Um, uh, I know coming back to the, the Olympic Winter Games, uh, viewing viewership in Australia for their mixed doubles team was tremendous. Uh, there's a sudden interest in the sport, never mind an interest, just an awareness <laughs> that uh, somebody from our country does this. And I'm sure it will be the same for uh, the team from Turkey that uh, uh, their countrymen and the countrywomen are going to be aware for the first time ever that we've got an international class team that's competing at the top level of our sport in this sport. And there will be people in Turkey that said, I didn't even know we did this in this country. And uh, that is almost more important, I think, for the athletes than the sport funding. is just knowing that you've got the broader level of interest and support, that you don't have to explain what the sport is anymore to uh, uh, other people in your country. And that's the kind of thing that making an appearance at the top level really does for, uh, for any nation. Now, last year, Team Kovaleva of Russia reached the final at the Women's Worlds in Calgary. This year, the World Curling Federation decided that Russia would not be allowed to participate due to the recent uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, ultimately, Russia was replaced by Chechia, but they weren't the first option. Can you walk us through the process that led to the World Curling Federation choosing Chechia to fill that last spot at the Women's Worlds? Right. So, um, after... um uh, the vacancy was created when the Russian Curling Federation um, wasn't permitted to enter the event. Uh, the method that the World Curling Federation used to uh, fill that uh, place in the field was going back to the uh, results from the world qualifying event and teams that had participated in that event but hadn't qualified directly for Prince George and went through um, that in order. And so the uh, place the first offer was made to Latvia in the, as the next highest place team in that event. Um, they declined the opportunity, um, and of course, this all happened at very short notice. And so, the logistics around this for any team uh, were going to be difficult. Um, likewise, the opportunity was offered to Finland when Latvia uh, declined the opportunity, and Finland also logistically couldn't uh, um, uh, make it happen for their athletes, and so. Uh, the next team in that ranking was uh, the Czech Republic, who were able to take the spot up and uh, are very excited about competing in, in Prince George. Now, another country that will not be in Prince George is China. There was a big push to grow the curling uh, community, the curling program in China when Beijing was selected to host the 2022 Olympics, including the uh, development of the short-lived uh, World Cup of curling and the hiring of uh, Swedish curling legend Peja Lindholm to lead their program. Now, results in Beijing were disappointing with none of the three Chinese teams reaching the playoffs. Can you provide us with a quick update on the Chinese curling scene, Hans, and whether there was a sense of disappointment within the program following the results at the Olympics in Beijing? Yeah, the um, the Chinese obviously invested huge effort uh, on teams in all their sports. It wasn't just curling, obviously, in terms of preparing their teams and their athletes for um, competition in Beijing. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that you know nearly all of their elite efforts oriented around that event, and that included uh, their teams' participation in some quali- qualifying events that. Uh, could include world championship participation. So it's had an impact. There's no doubt. Um, Hard to say what the kind of the forward um, ambitions of uh, the Chinese elite program are, but, you know, I think there's no doubt that they will uh, return and return strongly. Um, They'll like every other country will be kind of thinking what the next four years looks like. Uh, They will want to compete 
in, in the next Olympic Winter Games. And so uh, the only path to doing that is qualifying at a world championship. So they'll be about. And uh, um, if you think across the dimension of uh, curling that happened in Beijing, uh, China just won the gold medal in uh, in in Paralympic wheelchair curling. And uh, um, their teams, although they didn't medal in men's, women's, or mixed doubles, um, to my mind, they competed credibly. They were not uh, embarrassed by any means, quite the opposite. You know, they were competitive. So um, I expect to see uh, China back uh, competing um, on the world stage in short order and how they'll orient their program to um, uh, take them into the next phase you know, remains to be seen. But, you know, there's certainly uh, a, a legacy of much higher awareness of the sport in China. Uh, uh, many more facilities, many more people interested in the sport generally. Um, so all of those ingredients bode well for uh, whatever comes next for Chinese curling. And finally, Hans, as you know, we don't do predictions on the From the Hack podcast. That said, I'm wondering what you're expecting to see at the Women's Worlds in Prince George next week. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's a class field and an interesting field, I think, uh, as a starter. I mean, you've got you know, legitimate superstars of the sport um, competing here. And so it's going to be good viewing every day in, in Prince George. You're going to see top quality play. And so that's the, the starting uh, point. Um, for me, I don't know why. And again, I didn't ask me for a prediction. It feels to me like this could be Kerry Anderson's time. Um, so uh, I think the thing that all the athletes have been um, yearning for is not only the chance to compete, but the actual chance to um, have have a, a spectating audience and feel the energy of a an event again, and so that is by and of itself is treasured, I think, by most of the competitors. Just the chance to actually compete and hopefully um, uh, have some uh, fans in the stands to engage with. So I think they're all looking forward to that. Um, I'm, a couple of things I'm going to be also interested in. Um, you know, they may not make the playoffs, but to me, Stefania Constantini, she's relatively new to the skip position in the women's team level, but to me, she elevated massively uh, at the Olympic Winter Games in mixed doubles, just in terms of her announcing herself as a talent uh, at, at the highest level of the sport. And it'll be interesting to see if she can carry that over and uh, bring that glow to her teammates. And so I'll be interested in how the Italian team performs. Um, also going to be interested to see how the newer teams perform, you know, particularly Turkey and, and Scotland, um, which have got teams with talent, but the first time facing uh, teams of this caliber. So all kinds of ingredients there. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, we always seem to ignore the two-time defending champion. <laughs> so um, lots of potential winners, you know, six are going to make the playoffs. One of them is going to be a surprise and it's going to be a lot of fun. For this week's final interview, I was joined by the members of uh, Team Anderson, who will represent Canada at the 2022 Women's World Championships in Prince George uh, starting on the weekend. They joined me shortly after practicing at a local club. 
Hey, Carrie, your team has not competed in an event uh, since the end of the Scotties, which was over a month ago. How did uh, the team go about ensuring that you all stayed sharp while also ensuring that you are well-rested? Did you all simply throw rocks on your own, or did any or all of you play in games maybe against uh, other teams to uh, to practice or maybe just league games at your local club individually? Uh, how did you go about making sure that you stayed sharp while you were waiting for the start of the uh, Women's Worlds? Um, yeah, we, uh, we haven't got to play in any events since the Scotties, but, uh, we had a really great training weekend a few weeks back, uh, when Val flew in and, uh, um, got some good practicing in then, um, and also, uh, just practicing, um, individually or, uh, Kristen, Brianne and Shannon and I go throw and then Val throws with Jeff and, uh, uh, Edmonton. So yeah, we've uh, been on the ice and uh, we feel ready. Now, I'm sure that all of you thought this team would be good when you formed it at the end of the last Olympic cycle, but did any of you have three-time Scotties champs on your vision boards for this cycle? I don't know, Val, did you draw it out? I came across that picture the other day. I think it was, you know, obviously a dream, but yeah, to win three in a row, um, is a pretty incredible accomplishment. Yeah, I think I. I mean, I think it's something that we uh, set our sights on, um, but I don't know if we ever thought that it was something we would accomplish so quickly as a team. So. Uh, we're now, I think the whole four skips conversation has been overdone at this point. You've all spoken about how you each had to buy into your roles on the team, and obviously it has paid great dividends. Uh, at different times, I've asked each of you about the different challenges of accepting and excelling in your roles on the team. But to switch things up a little this time, I want to ask each of you what you are the most proud of over the past cycle, not from a results perspective, but perhaps from a growth perspective as individual curlers. We'll start with Carrie, and then we'll go down uh, the line to Val, then Shannon, then Brianne? Um, I'm definitely um, very proud of the resilience we show um, as a team. And uh, <laughs> um, we just never uh, give up and we never let anything uh, bring us down. So we've been through a lot in these four years together and uh, very proud to call these girls my teammates. What about you, Val? She took mine. Sorry, I corrected your answer. Yeah, I think I, I I second that. You know, we we've you know had our backs against the wall and come out on top. And you know, there's always going to be ups and downs and and everything. But I think I'm super impressed with how everyone responds really well, and we really band together as a team. And uh, you know, good coaching along the way too. And uh, yeah, it's a good team unit. Shannon? Um, yeah, just to build on Val's last thought there, the team unit, um, the collaboration amongst this team um, and how we think about games, how we think about improving and getting better is, is always an open discussion um, amongst the four of us about how we can get better and then actually putting into action um, those words. So I think that's been a really big thing for us over the last four years in making us better. And uh, Brienne? 
I agree with what all the girls said. Those are big points on what we're always really proud of with ourselves. So Val, when I spoke to Carrie a day or two after your Scotty's win in Thunder Bay, I asked her who typically helped her settle down after a difficult shot or end like the one your team had in the eighth end of the Scotty's final this year. And she said it was you, which leads me to my next question, which is for the whole team. Typically on these topped teams, uh, there are each individual player plays these little roles, these little functions that may not be completely obvious on TV. Sometimes it's stuff that happens on the ice. Sometimes it's off-ice stuff that, you know, each player kind of fits into a role and and plays that throughout the evolution of a team. I'm wondering if uh, each of you can share the roles that you play on a team that might not be obvious when watching your team play. And this time we'll start with Brianne and then go to uh, Shannon and Val and then Carrie. Can I answer this one for her? She is... Very funny, and she's a comedian out there, but I also think she's a spark plug. She's the rah-rah person. Why don't we switch it up a little bit, ladies, and uh, allow your teammates to talk about the roles that uh, the other players play on this team? (laughs) I'd say that Shannon is very calm and collected, and if things get out of hand, she's always the first one to make sure we all look at the big picture and just calm down and zone in on what our next objective is in the next end. So she's very good at just getting all our heads back on track if anything doesn't go right right away. How about with uh, Val? I'm certainly not the music or restaurant customer, <laughs> so I'm glad I contribute on the ice. <laughs> I'd say Val is very good at checking in on everyone, like on a personal level. Whenever someone's maybe having a bad day or she can tell that someone just needs a little pick-me-up, she's always there. and She can always um, either send you a text or go visit you in your room and make sure you're doing okay and She's very empathetic and great with everyone's feelings and making sure everyone feels great all the time. Yeah, I'd say she's also kind of like the compass of the team. She makes sure that we're all heading in the right direction. Carrie's our, our you know, fearless leader. She's, you know, I've, you know, the role of learning when to say something, when not. And you can tell when she gets in that zone and you're just like, back off, don't mess it up. Yeah, she just does a great job of leading us out there and uh, coming through when we need her the most. Now, there was a lot of pressure on your team heading into the Worlds last year. There always is uh, to a degree when you wear the maple leaf on the curling sheet. But last year's Worlds was a little extra because there was an Olympic spot on the line. Now, had I asked all of you the week before last year's Worlds, you likely would have told me, no, we're not feeling any additional pressure, which is what players do. Uh, However, one year removed now, just how hard was that week in Calgary last year at your first Worlds? It was uh, really hard. Uh, We spent a long time in that bubble, and uh, it it sometimes got depressing. Like, you're stuck in a room with four walls, and, you know, like, yeah, you could go and visit your teammates, but you can only do so much, and sometimes uh, get annoyed of each other, I guess. Uh, when you can't go out and actually do something. So, uh, yeah, it was it was challenging. Um, and, yes, other teams were in the same boat, um, but not all. And um, But I think we, we did our absolute best and we gave it our all out there. And um, uh, that added a pressure uh, to get Canada Olympic spot. It's, it's something else, that's for sure. What did you learn about yourselves as a team uh, in the Calgary bubble last year at the World Championships that will serve you well in Prince George? I think, well, I think you can just like look at the way that we dug ourselves out of the hole that we got into at the, at the beginning of the Worlds and how we were able to come together and still string 
together as many wins as we did and, and still qualify, um, it would have been easy to throw in the towel uh, at a one in five record to start the week. And we definitely did not do that. We uh, bear down and uh, got it done. And so I think that's something to take into any end or game or tournament going forward. It's never over till it's over. And finally, Coach Reed, uh, you've played in and won a World Championship for Canada a few years ago. What are going to be the keys for the team to not only play well this week, but to position themselves to make a run on the second weekend of the Worlds and hopefully uh, bring home a World Championship for Canada? Enjoy themselves. Perspective. Like, you look at what's going on in other parts of the world. Um, you know, we're very fortunate to be here, you know, to get back come back to Prince George, you know, it's really interesting. This is where it got taken away from them. So just like enjoy, enjoy all the moments and enjoy themselves on and off the ice. And honestly, if we bring the same version of the team that we brought to the Scotties, I really like our chances. And that does it for this episode of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. A huge thank you to Brad Gushu, Hans Fraunlob, and Team Anderson for joining me this week. Also a reminder that our partners in the Curling Podcast Network are the Two Girls in the Game Podcast, the Curling Legends Podcast, and the Rock Logic Podcast. Please go give them a listen. You certainly won't be disappointed. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.